All right. So thanks to everyone who is joining us to listen for a little bit, spending a little bit of your time with us today. Today I'm with Matt Whitman, the host of the 10 Minute Bible Hour. Matt runs the YouTube channel, the 10 Minute Bible Hour, where he he will talk about. I'm sorry, my whole screen got messed up there for a second, but he has a lot of things he does in that channel, his channel that are really awesome. It's really unique. He does a lot of different conversations with different denominations in Christianity, which I think are like really great conversations. Um, we're going to talk about that a lot. And then he'll do a lot of stuff regarding the Bible. Like I saw he has a big, long series on Acts and Luke and mm -hmm. all kinds of fun stuff in the Bible. So thanks for your time, Matt. Yeah. Well, thanks for hanging out, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. So I think we'll just start off for a little bit. Um, can you just tell me a little bit of like your testimony and then kind of what inspired you to start the 10 minute Bible hour? Sure. Yeah. That's a good place to start, Zach. Um, uh, dad was a Baptist pastor growing up. He still is, I suppose. Um, he's a first generation Christian. So when I was a kid, he was going through a lot of the formative processes of figuring out which version of this thing makes sense. I think he flirted with fundamentalism, Pentecostalism a little bit, ended up in kind of a reformed Baptist place. So I got a front row seat to all of that process. And I would say the the spiritual tenets that dad was wrestling through would occasionally manifest as expectations for kids, which I'm glad he raised us around it, but it certainly at times created kind of a confusing dynamic. Is this dad's take and therefore I need to do it because I need to do what my dad says because he's a good dad and I want to like be a good kid? Or is this like a universal thing about how God is? And so I think like a, a lot of people who are, you know, in this kind of Gen X, uh, older millennial range, the, the youth group generation, if you will, I think like a lot of us, there is kind of a weird mingling about social prohibition and niceties and behavior in church and that getting kind of mushed together and entangled with the actual stuff that Jesus actually says. Some of it overlaps. And some of it's kind of a construct. And I, I would guess that there are some people watching right now who are like, yeah, my my adult faith, my adult life has been trying to kind of untangle that clump of Christmas tree lights. Where there's a bunch of those lights that really work and are true things that I want to carry over into adulthood. But a lot of those things are kind of weird late 1990s Christian subculture fads that I don't really owe any allegiance to whatsoever. And so I'm one of those people sorting through that same stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I my undergraduate degrees are in history of thought and, and Bible itself. And I went, I worked at a church for a long time that that went pretty well, I guess. And then I went back and I did seminary at Trinity in Chicago, well, Deerfield, Illinois. And that was um, a great experience, really smart people, learned a lot and came out of there pretty sure I knew everything about everything that there was to know about everything. I had that kind of abrasive post-seminary know-it-all routine going. And I went to my first church after that and stuff got really weird. And the whole thing just kind of, it just broke. I, I had taken the behavior first, me first, the chief byproduct of the Christian life is altered behavior and social standing and voting. I'd taken that build of Christian faith, I think about as far as I could take it, and it just quit making sense. Like the Bible just didn't make sense. I, I would read the document and be like, I, I've been trained to look at this with a certain set of eyes, and it's just indefensible. <laughs> and and it, my dad didn't train me to do that. 
and Trinity didn't train me to do that. It's just, I just osmosed it in. Like I think you know, so many of us do. Um, and so then for a longer time than I care to admit, I, I think just at the very visceral, honest level, I just didn't feel like there was probably a God because um, I couldn't make sense of Christianity in the Bible. And then some stuff kind of shifted after that, where I was like, you know, there have been people who have been telling me that the the point of the document isn't humans and human behavior, that the main character is God. I've heard that, but I, I need to try to understand what that means. And so kind of reading through the Bible with that set of lenses, the, I mean, the book really holds up. It makes a ton of sense with God as the main character, his redemption and glory as the main plot thrust. And that's, that's the brand of Christianity that I came back around to. And so as a result, since then, I felt really empathetic toward generation youth group like me, where we got a bunch of true stuff. We got a bunch of stuff that was well-intended, but probably honestly just sort of social coaching. Um, I felt very empathetic toward people who just don't know what to make of the whole thing. Um, they, one day it's all in perfect focus and the next day you got a, a set of gigantic questions you're not really equipped to answer and it's it's very difficult and that can you know be tough with faith i'm very empathetic to the person who feels a little bit culturally religiously socially homeless i i don't vote like evangelical christians but i don't vote like people who are mad at evangelical christians and react the other way i tend to do this really hardcore live and let live God is patient with me. I want to be patient with other people. Well, hardly anybody thinks that. Like that that's not why you vote. You vote for power. Well, I don't like power very much. And so, uh, you know, where do I fit? Where do I where do I go to church? But but I am a creedal Christian. Um, I've gone to school for all of this stuff three times over and love doing it. And so I just thought, you know, to get to the second part of your question about how the ten minute Bible hour thing happened. It was fall of 2014, and I was just feeling like, you know, I've done a lot of complaining about church and ways to do it wrong, and I'm not doing enough that's proactive to try to do things that would be good or helpful or make things better or serve people. I'm just really perfecting my complaints and how to articulate them at Chili's, and that doesn't help anybody. So, like, I, I'm just going to try and do something. It's pretty rigid and rough at the beginning, and maybe it's still a little rigid and rough at times, but... Um, I was like, I'm just, I'm just going to try to pick a book of the text, process straight through it with people. I don't need people to think what I think. I don't need them to agree with all of it, but let's treat it more like an educational thing where we're looking at the data and acknowledging how in these different points, people can see it differently. Here's historically how different Christian groups have seen it differently. And then I like to include the perspective of the, the skeptic who wishes it was true and even the atheist who is sure it's not true and is glad it's not true. How would this text look to that set of eyes? How would this text look to that set of eyes? And then I try to come at it from my own set, which is, I think there's a God. I think he's behind this document. I think there's credibility to it, but man, being what I've been through, like, I just don't want to burn anybody down. You know, I'd much rather have the big lunch table where we just invite everybody to come and sit down and think about it. And ultimately it's the internet. I don't own anybody. So if people land different places, I just got to be cool with that and be patient with people. Same way people are patient with me and God's patient with me. So yeah, I guess long story short, um, I try to do a program where I unapologetically think things and I, I can't help but have a certain set of convictions. I can't help but be processing through things and trying to think it through and grow for myself, but also where I at least acknowledge how somebody could see it different and try to demonstrate that I understand how they see it different. And then the conversation hopefully is 
you, we pump the brakes a little bit. You know, we can settle down, like each other, and have kind of a long view of this thing instead of the always be closing. I need people to land on my stuff right now. I gave you five proofs. You have to believe my thing kind of approach. So mm -hmm. there's a story. That's how I became a Christian. That's what my faith was like. And that's how I got into the whole uh, make stuff on the internet gig. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm glad you make stuff on the internet, but uh, amen to that. I really appreciate your testimony. And I think that's something that I really like about what you're doing and something that I'm trying to do more, something that really aren't a lot of people doing is really looking to try to understand other people's views as well. Like I see a lot of people on the internet who are just saying, this is my point. This is what I believe. If you don't believe me, you're either you're ignorant or you're not smart or something like dishonest. that. Or dishonest. Yeah. Dishonest. Um, the accusations. Mm -hmm. And that's just something that I've seen where you're really out there just trying to understand what other people believe and why they believe. And you're very respectful with it. So Thanks. regarding that, one of the things that I've seen you do a lot and it's seen really have a lot of popularity is when you go to these other churches, these other denominations where you probably don't agree with everything they say theologically. Well, obviously you don't. No, don't. And so Sorry. what was, what was the inspiration? Cause I believe if I looked at it right, you started doing that maybe like a year ago, I believe like what was it? Or maybe I could be wrong there. Uh, what was the inspiration behind going to these other churches? Well, I was thinking about doing a series on, on what other people think and I mean, that's stuff I went to school for is stuff. I, I, I read these books and stuff. I don't read as much as smarter, better people and, you know, people who've been doing this longer, but I really like, I really like the world of ideas. And it seems like when you talk about religious ideas or political ideas or social ideas on the internet, you're not actually talking about ideas. Some people couch it as though you're having a conversation and, and educating each other and learning why, People think what they think. But in reality, the bottom line is always be closing. They, if I'm talking with a, a Catholic, generally speaking, they're trying to get me to be Catholic. If I'm talking with a Calvinist, they would like me to be a Calvinist. Good. I mean, that makes sense that you, you hold to something you believe is so true that you would want to give it away to other people. But that makes it really hard to get to the bottom of what people actually think because you're always getting best foot forward and you're always getting this weird hybrid internet debate thing where it's like half enlightenment style logic debate class kind of stuff from the mid 20th century and also the weird uh, you know 21st century emotionalism and and i just little axioms and and truisms and jabs that fit into the a twitter sized comment and that stuff just it, it compromise it deep down when we do that kind of debate, I think we all know that what we're getting is a sales pitch and we're not getting a really accurate sense of why another person thinks a thing. And so we come away hoping that our crowd liked the way we fired off our shots. And the other crowd's gonna like the way they fired off their shots, but you do this long enough, Zach, and it's like watching the same game of Axis and Allies again and again. You ever play that game? A while ago, yeah, I think I did. Okay. <laughs> so Axis and Allies simulates um, right around, it, it begins right around Pearl Harbor, right? So you're in World War II, 1940s, and all the pieces on the whole global map are laid out on this board game where they were actually laid out in that moment. And then Pearl Harbor happens and the whole game sets into motion. And there's only a few ways that it really plays out because of the limitations of, of all the different countries and where they had bases and where they had troops. 
And so if you play it long enough, you're like, well, obviously you're Russia. You're going to pull everybody back to Moscow. I know how that works. Obviously you're the Germans. If you want to win, you're going to have to go really, really aggressive. Obviously the Japanese are going to attack Pearl Harbor. For, and you just know you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. They're going to do this. I'm going to do this. And eventually it's like, can we just get past the first 15 moves? Because I know what everybody's going to do. And there's not really much variation in those first 15 moves. Can we just get to the part where actual things happen, where we're like, that was all of our moves. Now let's now let's get into the stuff where it's original. And that's where I'm at with debate on the internet about religion in the 21st century. Like people throw out comments like, you think I haven't heard that one before? Like, I, yeah, I know that's what you think. And now I move this chess piece and you move that one and I move this one. Can we just skip to the part where we tell each other the truth and, and get down to the, the bottom of it? And so the reason that I decided to go and just start going to churches and asking people what they think is because I wanted to, I thought maybe if we're in person, we could just skip all the initial chess moves that everybody knows anyway and do the thing where we like maybe sort of like each other and hang out and kind of have a laugh about stuff that we see different a little bit, rib each other a little bit. And I can just ask questions like I'm an idiot because on some of this stuff, I frankly kind of am an idiot. And then somebody really believes it and is convicted by it without feeling threatened or like we're having a debate or like in the end, I'm going to make a final judgment as to who was right, can just lay it out and educate me, not because I'm looking to sign up, but because I really would like to understand what all the other people think so that I can quit imagining that they're all dishonest or crazy in my brain and can see them as they are, which is logical, rational people who are running the simulation a certain way and arriving at certain conclusions that I might disagree with, and I might have good reasons to disagree with it, but I don't even know what I'm disagreeing with if I don't actually listen to somebody first. So that's why I've been doing it. Yeah, um, there's really good what you're doing, because I think I've watched a few of these now, and one thing I noticed is you're just you're just listening. Like It's not like, like when you're in those, I can kind of see in your mind, you're just trying to learn. You're not just like thinking of like that counterpoint where you're just like, hey, but what about this? You're just trying to get everything that they're trying to say. And I think that's really an amazing thing that you're doing. So why do you think, I mean, I think obviously, I think I'm, I have an idea of an answer to this question in my mind, but why do you think these uh, videos of you going into, like I saw, I think the one where you enter the beautiful Catholic cathedral and yeah. Salt Lake has like 750,000 views. Why do you think those are so popular? It's people who should be obliterating each other, being nice to each other for starters. <laughs> <laughs> it, it it looks like it should be a dumpster fire. And then, I don't know, I haven't met anybody. Mm. No, I want to be honest. I've tried to make a couple of videos that I haven't published because I, I frankly, I think the person was kind of combative. And that, that's not a good look for them. I don't want to put that on the internet, embarrass them, make them look bad for not understanding the exercise. Maybe it's on me. Maybe I didn't communicate it properly. But every video I've published and the whole batch I've got in the can right now, they're going to come out soon. Everybody was just really cool. They're like, oh, yeah, I get what you're saying. So we're not going to have a fight. You're going to ask me why we wear these pointy hats. Yep, that's it. I just want to know why you wear that pointy hat. And I want to know why you got that swingy thing with the incense and all of that. And what is that supposed to accomplish? And you know, I, I want to ask why you have drummers and everybody up there wears jeans and you have an electric guitar. Why is why does your church look like this? The people who have understood the drill have been incredible. And even those who haven't have still been pretty nice. So I think people watch it in parts is because we should hate each other and 
it's kind of reassuring to be reminded, well, when it's actually a human and we're not mediated by a screen and you're actually in person with somebody, we tend to we tend to just figure it out with each other. And then if we disagree, eh, we care about the other person. We kind of get to the bottom of why. And we eventually reach a point of asking the question why again and again, where we're like, ah, that right there. That's why we don't agree. And I might not change your mind on that. And I might not need to. But okay, I at least get it now. Where we go from here, eh, we can figure that out later. And so I think people enjoy that. I think people just enjoy doing it for the educational side. I, I hope that's it. I'm trying to make these videos totally unpersuasive and entirely just data. Here's what, here's what a Catholic thinks. This is what a Missouri Synod Lutheran pastor thinks. This is how Catholic theology works. This is what an evangelical free church pastor thinks about how they do Sunday morning. You don't have to like it. You can like it if you want to. It's not a sales pitch. It's just data. And there's a whole lot of stuff on the internet that is educational in nature. And, and a lot of people seem to consume that. And I think people's favorite stuff is the stuff that doesn't demand that you end the video thinking everything the way I think it, but instead, here's the data. Now you're smart. Go and think about it. And I think it's um, it's been cool that I've been able to find people who are up for tackling it that way on a topic that usually just has to be persuasive in nature. Yeah, I think that's a great way of just a great thing you've been saying there. Um, yeah, so much on the internet is just a debate. Like, and I mean, I know I've said this before uh, in this clip, I'm repeating myself, but it's important because what you're doing is you're just listening. And like, there's not, I can't find that many interactions on the internet where we have someone like, let's say a Protestant and a Catholic who sit down and it's not a debate. It's just you trying to listen. And I think that's why it's been so popular is just, you're just hearing what they have to say and not trying to win the point over them. And just, you're just, you just want to learn. And I think that's what people oftentimes go on the internet for hopefully is to learn new things. Um, mm -hmm. So doing these videos, what are some of the things that you've learned? Maybe some of the things that have surprised you um, going into, let's say a cathedral or an Orthodox church or uh, a Baptist church or really any of those, any of these things you've done? Yeah, I've been I've been really intrigued to learn. So I'm a church history guy, a history of theology and history of religious thought. It's, that's what I keep going to school for. That's what I really like. That's what I've taught um, in the past in that kind of a setting. So my mind is really wired for how do people think about their history? How do people view how they got to where they are? Not just technologically and politically, but intellectually. Uh, how did that happen? And I've been really intrigued to note that pretty much everybody I've talked to has got a very clear sense of how that evolved. So what sometimes from the outside looking in to different Christian groups might seem sort of thoughtless, that hasn't been my experience. I've not only been, I've not only learned that people know the story of their branch of the, the Christian family tree, I've learned a lot of stuff about those individual stories about how people got there. And it's one thing to read that in an academic text in, in the kind of class that I would take or teach, it's another thing to be like, well, yeah, but what does an Anglican think about how Anglican Anglicanism happened? And it's really interesting, for example, there, to sit with an Anglican and you figure everything's gonna be Henry VIII, everything's gonna be Elizabeth I and the, the English Reformation. Mm -mm. His answers about where they came from were almost entirely Catholic. 
um, or from the age that we think of as the the lowercase Catholic age. He's talking about you know Columba and I, Iona and Patrick and all of these different missionaries that went up north and what. So he's he's tracing English Christianity all the way back to the very beginning of English Christianity. Well, I wouldn't have known that. And so talking with him, I learned a lot about how an Anglican conceives of their branch in the family tree. And that was fascinating to me. Uh, I've learned a lot of stuff about what people actually believe versus what you just hear in the rumor mill. Um, some of it is accurate. Sometimes the rumor mill is spot on. But I've got a video coming up with uh, an Oriental Orthodox church, a Coptic church, an Egyptian church. That dude is spectacular. He's in Chicago. And there are a couple of things, and I won't get into all of it here, that theologically have always kind of been the knock on the Coptic church, that the Western church and even the Greek Orthodox church have looked at what's gone on in the Coptic church and been like, well, really since the Council of Chalcedon, you guys in the Coptic church have been over here and the rest of Christianity has been over here. And therefore, by implication, we're saying, and therefore you're wrong about this one question about the the dual nature or the single nature, as it were, of Jesus. Well, I went and talked to the guy and what, what I've read, what, what we have ascribed to the Coptic church in terms of their belief on that issue. It's not what they say. Maybe somebody thought that once, but maybe not. And in talking with him, I learned about language barriers and culture barriers and political barriers that made it difficult to sort out that disagreement between the Western church and the historical Coptic church over the last 1600 years. And I go and sit with the guy in Chicago. He's like, oh wait, no, that's a misconception. Here's what we think. Here's our paperwork. Here's how long we've thought it. I'm like, oh, oh, well, every time I've talked about you guys, I have fundamentally misrepresented what you've believed for thousands of years. I guess I apologize, my bad, but I never would have known if I wouldn't have gone and talked to that guy. So church history stuff I've learned in this process. I've, I've learned a whole lot about theology where I think I know, but I get really humbled on camera because I just didn't know. And I've repeated things that just aren't accurate. Um, and then the other thing that I guess I've learned a lot about is how different churches conceive of whatever they imagine me to be, whatever they might imagine you to be in terms of our little parts of the Christian family tree. And as a result, I feel like I've hit it off with pretty much everybody I've sat and talked with because they've, you know, I, I've learned their perception of me or what they imagine to be my group. And we've got to kick that around as well. So yeah, I've learned a ton, man. Yeah, I completely, I think it's one thing obviously to hear from someone online or someone telling what someone else believes, but it's another thing to just sit down and it's obviously what you've been saying and just hear from someone in person. Like I remember one time I went to the local mosque in town like a couple years ago and I just kind of <laughs> sat down with uh, Iman there, I believe he was. And we just had a conversation for like an hour and I just learned, I learned so much about Islam in that hour that I either never knew or was, it was a misconception based off what people told me. And it's just, it's amazing the power of just sitting down and having a conversation with someone. Yeah. Let me let me throw out one other thing that I've learned that, that is kind of unexpected. I, I've learned a little bit about the strengths and the insecurities of the online persona of adherence to different expressions of Christianity. So I learned a lot about American Eastern Orthodox Christians and European 
Eastern Orthodox Christians from reading all those comments. I mean, some of these things go for, I don't even know, like, like 10, 15, 20,000 comments on some of these. And that's, that's a lot. That's, that's a huge sample size to get a sense. Remember I was talking about Axis and Allies and chess. Like, unfortunately, there's a lot of time wasted on the internet with people being like, here's move number one again. Oh yeah. Oh, I saw that comment. Well, here's our counter move number one. It's tedious. I read all of that, all of that, and it, and what I find is that, for example, your your the psyche of the Greek Orthodox person from America or Canada or the West who would go online and comment tends to be one of yeah, we're kind of quirky. We're a little bit outside. The whole thing feels like it's this giant fight between. Catholics and Protestants, kind of like everything feels like it's a fight between boomers and millennials right now. And two other generations are like, I mean, we're here too, maybe three generations. I don't know how you count them. Um, and so, you know, they're kind of comfortable in their own skin. There's like, this is this ancient thing. There's a whole lot of mystery and it's beautiful. And it's not really defensive, but the Eastern uh, or the European version of the online commenter who's a Greek Orthodox, um, there's a gracious version of that, but there's a kind of, combative version of that where like there, there was a theme there people were really mad about the the orthodox guy's outfit they were mad that there were uh pews instead of no chairs and everybody standing the whole time i, I they they really wanted to get after it on some technical things and i sensed some insecurity and some hurt over some really difficult historical realities that a European Eastern Orthodox has had to deal with that an American Greek Orthodox has not had to deal with. Thus, their online psyche is different. And again, I think the sample size is enough to know. The, the psyche of the, um, the Missouri Synod Lutheran is very, very different in terms of where they're at. A little bit, little bit of an outsider looking in at everything else. Maybe they feel like they've thought it through a little bit more than most other Protestants, and maybe they have. Um, they seemed a little more interested in getting after each other over really nailing down the exact right way to say Lutheran things than they did in like fighting with outsiders. So that was kind of endearing, but, but there was that, that tendency to be, you know, pretty cool, but willing to get after each other over really nailing down the language, the Catholic thing. Fascinating. It's about 50, 50 with Catholics who are kind of picking up what I'm putting down and like, cool, you want to learn about this. And we get that you're probably not in some elaborate spiritual journey considering becoming Catholic. Like it just seems like you're trying to just actually be nice and <laughs> ask and learn from us. And there are others who, and the sample size is huge here, that just cannot help but condescend. And it's, be careful. You do a little bit of study into the history of theology and you're going to become Catholic. I'm like, this is what I've done as a professional for 25 years. It is possible to look at the same data as you guys and come to a different conclusion. And we should be, I think, cool with that. And so and so there again, there's the psyche of the Catholic internet commenter tends to be a little bit more um, appeal to authority oriented. And kind of the idea is like, it's like China, we're the middle kingdom and we're waiting for people to come home to the middle kingdom. And there's the other half of the Catholic psyche is a little bit more I don't know, honestly, they sound a little bit more evangelical in nature while still holding to Catholic theology. And they tend to be able to play ball a little bit better in terms of just give and take and and understanding how someone could, at least even if they're wrong, see it different. 
And so what's fascinating to me is I feel like I'm getting to sit in this really interesting chair and and learn about how how people from different blocks of Christian thought manifest on the internet and where they're coming from. And that's just something I had not thought about or anticipated at all, but it's way more interesting than I just made it sound. And you were really patient listening to that whole thing, Zach. So thank you. <laughs> of course, man. I love, you're just so easy to listen to. Cause I think you're so, um, you're just so honest. Like I think a lot of the times we feel like you talk about people can look at the same evidence and come to the same conclusion or different conclusions. Oh my gosh. I just totally twisted your words. No, you nailed it. You got it. You got it. <laughs> I had a thought in my mind and it just came out differently, but I mean, I think you're totally right because oftentimes we just look at it and someone's like, how on earth can you be an atheist when I'm a Christian and we're looking at the same argument or same looking, reading the same Bible? Like how do we, and it's just, my thoughts are all scattered here, but just, I think you're so right in how people, everyone's different. People are going to look at the same evidence and come to different conclusions because people are just different. And I mean, if we all thought the same way, it'd be a pretty boring world. So, well, and where I think you're, where I think you're nailing it and everything you said just made sense to me. So it didn't, it didn't sound scattered on my end. Um, I think where you're nailing it is, is at the heart of the issue. I think for getting this right, when we have these conversations in 2020 and moving forward, it's changed. In 1950, in the era of death of a salesman and door-to-door vacuum cleaner sales, and we go around and it's like the idea was, you know, you run into somebody in an elevator and you're trying to sell them something. They're like, all right, son, you've got 13 floors to make your pitch, make it good. And the, the unspoken deal is like, if you make unbreakable arguments in these 13 floors of elevator ride, I have to buy your insurance policy because you outfoxed me. That's not, I don't, that's not how things work anymore. I don't care if your argument makes more sense. Nobody cares if your argument makes more sense. And they care about the fruit of your argument. What does it produce? It's part, does it make sense? And it's also part, would I want to be you? And so, and so we're just jerks to everybody and right all the time. We might be right, but nobody feels the obligation in 2020 to be like, well, you were right. I guess I'll have to be like you now. No, they feel total liberty to be like, I don't want to be like that. I just don't want to be that way. So, so if we if we model things that aren't very appealing and that aren't very Christ-like while making sensational arguments about Jesus things or sensational arguments and bickering with other Christians, I think you already lost. I mean, why would anybody want to sign up for that and be someone who's just bickers about how wrong everybody else is all the time. Uh, to a certain degree, that idea has changed. And how we have the conversation is just is just different. I think we live in a time where you're just going to have to be more patient with people. And so what I love about what you said is that that was implicit in your remarks. I and mean, the shift, I think, that we're watching and that needs to happen is that you have to like the people who you're having the conversation with. Like if God likes us, even though the gap between us and the righteousness of God is infinite, I mean, how much more so if we're a follower of the God who behaves like that, should we be able to like people who, wherever the gap is, it's microscopic comparably between us. Like we're in the same boat. Mm-hmm. We, should, we should be able to do the empathy thing and the patience thing and the long view thing. And, um, and if we actually think there's a God and a Holy Spirit, then, you know, he, he's on it. He's getting after it. And 
what we can do is be loving and cool and honest and think it through and admit when, you know, maybe we haven't got a point figured out and, um, and maybe, uh, you know, double down and think it through real hard when maybe we think we've, uh, we've got more to say. Uh, I don't know. I just think the tenor of the whole thing is shifting and implicit in your remarks there a second ago was, uh, an awareness of that, which I think is cool because you do a lot of, uh, collating. I mean, you, you gather get together people who think about these thoughts and you've done a really creative thing to, um, try to get people in the same room and comparing notes on how they do it and how they're coming at it and to figure out who their allies are. And so, so to have you see that and appreciate it is cool because you know, you're, you, you've put yourself in a, a position to shape this thing and to have some influence in it. And I think that's really cool. I appreciate it. Yeah. I think I had questions. I want to ask you questions, but you just keep bringing up these really good points. And um, something I just want to, emphasize more is just the power of just listening like i think i call this conversation like how to engage with um other believers from other denominations so that's something that's like the title of the stream or something but in truth really what we're talking about here is just listening like so for example i grew up i grew up in state college pennsylvania which is the campus of penn state university which you know pretty liberal university one of the most diverse universities we have one of the largest percentages of international students in the nation. Um, and there's this person, I just saw this on Instagram the other day, um, this street preacher who he may have good intentions, um, but he's one of those preachers that's going to be out there. He's on Penn state campus every day, basically screaming, repent, come to Jesus, or you're going to hell. And all the girls whores and mm -hmm, exactly. rip on everybody for things he imagines they're doing wrong with no evidence that they're actually doing it wrong. Yeah. I, I know the type. I think most campuses have that guy. Yeah. And it's just, I was thinking about it and like, now you brought, you brought this up and just how like we should be looking to listen. And that's how really how these relationships with people can prosper. And for a lot of people who are on this campus, maybe like two miles from where I am right now, that's the only taste of Christianity they've ever seen in their life. Um, when they think of the gospel or the Bible or who Jesus is, they just, they'll picture that preacher that's calling them a whore. Um, and that's not the way it should be. That's not at all what the gospel is. Obviously, we are sinners and called to repent. But it's just sad when that's the taste of Christianity that people will see. Well, it, it fits in with the mindset that has been unfortunately popularized all across the ideological spectrum in our lifetimes. And that's just everything's a fight and everything's political. You're always trying to get something. Both things cannot exist at once. Unfortunately, both right and left have signed off on that policy. There's one authority. It's the state. The state will be the decider. And you can't have the left vision and the right vision at once. You can't have the atheist vision and the religious vision at once. And even if you did do the religious vision, which one would it be? So it's a gigantic power game with huge stakes. And every one of these little conversations, unfortunately is sold out, the integrity of these conversations is betrayed by the fact that we've all tacitly agreed to be in one giant culture fight that'll get settled with elections and the authority of the state. I think that's dumb and it doesn't serve Christians well at all. I think what makes much more sense for Christians is to say, have your world kingdom. We're gonna try to do things that are redemptive in it, we'll participate, We'll, we'll try to do things that are justice oriented and that show concern for the weak and the vulnerable and for basic fundamental agreed upon morality. But we're going to be patient on stuff that doesn't have victims. 
And we are not going to try to make Jesus happen by force. We're not going to vote to take over your stuff and then have men with guns enforce Christianity on other people. And I think most Christians get that, but we get into this weird tizzy panic whenever the culture wars come up or election time comes around. And then we we do stuff that makes it seem like we don't actually believe very much of this for real. Don't you know, we believe more that like maybe government is God. We kind of hope there's actually a God, but I think if we think there's actually a God, then we have to think there's actually a kingdom. We have to think he's sovereign over this stuff. And then our objective should be to do the thing that he said our objective should be, which is glorify God, go and make disciples, love people. And at no point do we see the formula for that be defeat the people who are wrong in arguments and then defeat them in elections and take over via force. The model is much more human. It's much more one-to-one. And the New Testament seems to really acknowledge that we are far more likely to suffer at the hands of governors and people who don't like what we think than we are to be the governors who make other people suffer. I don't see anything like that in the Bible. And so when you commodify everything into little culture war points, it makes it really hard to have an honest conversation because I mean, if I talk with anybody about anything, the first assumption is I'm trying to win a culture fight. And then are we going to be honest with each other? Really? If there are stakes to this thing, it might affect how somebody gives their precious vote one way or the other. Well, now we don't trust each other. The well is poisoned and it's hard to talk. So I think one of the first things you have to do if you want to talk to somebody about eternal things in a way that matters is actually like them. And then I think the second thing you have to do is let them know this is not like some secret maneuver that I'm doing to make some imagined tribe I have politically win out. I renounce the tribe. I'm I, I'm just interested in you. I'm just interested in things that are true. And I'm just interested in people of goodwill like that from wherever they land ideologically who want to think it through with me. Yeah, I think we live in a culture where people are so used to superficial relationships where everyone is trying to use each other or get that follower, that like, or when that point, when there's a lot of people who really want those deep relationships where you actually care about each other, like you've been talking about. So the last kind of thing I want to ask you out here is as Protestants, obviously we're both Protestants here. Um, and probably most of the people listening to this will be as well. Um, so how as Protestants should we look at engaging with, um, Catholics or Orthodoxes, because there's a lot of people who would say Catholics aren't saved um, or Orthodox Christians aren't saved. So obviously, I mean, you don't have to give your whole position on our Catholics born again Christians. Um, but how should we as Protestants be looking? How should we engage with Catholics and Orthodoxes or that other kind of off branch Christianity or not off branch? They're very, but that, that part where people are a lot of people would say they aren't actually believers in Jesus Christ. Well, first of all, if anybody from an Orthodox tradition or a Catholic tradition is, is listening, like they're screaming at you right now. <laughs> yeah, you guys are the offshoot. Whereas Protestants would respond to that uh, that accusation as saying, but no, we're not. Like, all of our doctrine is from the Bible. Uh, the, the Protestant response, here's all the chess moves. would be like, no, you guys are the ones who broke away from what the gospel and what the text actually says. And, it's kind of a weird mix of Platonism and medieval superstition and um, and authoritarianism that got bundled up into a different expression than what the Bible describes. So the Protestants are all going to say, we're doing what the Bible says and what the earliest Christians did. 
the Catholics are going to say, but you guys discount, and the Orthodox say the same, but you guys discount church tradition. Where do you think your Bible came from? Catholics did that at a couple of regional councils. Therefore, that's the reality. Martin Luther attacked the authority of the Bible and of the church. And you just can't leave. I mean, I just know all the chess moves. <laughs> and and I think what my friend, uh, Catholic theologian, Dr. Jeremy Holmes said in a conversation that I published recently with him was, was spot on that if we negotiate the manifestations of our big differences, and that's what we debate and argue about, we're just going to think other people are either lying or crazy. You go and talk with uh, any expression of Christianity that holds Mary in, in very high regard, I think inappropriately high regard. I think Protestants undervalue her. I think Catholic, Catholics and Orthodox overvalue Mary. Well, the reason we both err the way we err, though, is because of assumptions that have nothing to do with Mary. And so if we sit and debate and hash it out with a Catholic friend or an Orthodox friend over Mary, you're kind of spinning your wheels on that. You got to go all the way back to what we understand about what happens to saints when they die. What makes someone a saint? Or are all Christians saints? Uh, th there are all kinds of assumptions about how time works that a Catholic is going to have to hold to, to hold to their view about about the saints and even the ability to commune with dead saints that Protestants just don't hold. And so if you don't work all the way back to, okay, well, okay, we see that different, but it seems like there's some underlying assumptions. Let's work back to that. Let's work back to that. Let's work back to that. We're not going to understand each other and we're going to think each other are just nuts. And so I know all the things that Catholics in particular think about me, you, us, and, and they're, they're half-baked. I mean, they really are. There's an answer to all the things that get said at me in comment sections. But I also know a lot of the Catholic answers to half-baked things that I see Protestants saying at them in comment sections. And I think to answer your question, the way we can get somewhere that's at least fruitful, at least to a place of, of gracious coexistence and understanding, is to, if it feels like we're getting irritated with each other, it's probably because we're hanging out in something that is a symptom or an expression of a core belief that's four or five layers removed from the actual core belief. And we're never going to get anywhere unless we work backwards to the core beliefs and think about them. And at the very least, we'll come away with understanding why we see it different. At the very most, maybe we push each other towards something that makes a little more sense, depending on your perspective. Um, so I would say, same way we engage with anybody, Zach. Um, you have to like people first. Like you have to make the conscious decision. I like you and I care about your well-being. And I'm going to do that even if you ultimately reject everything, I think. If you can't commit to that in the first place, everything after that's going to go pretty terribly. And I think people can smell that from a mile away. So you got you to like people first. You have to assume the same thing that the historian assumes about people who existed in the past. These people were sane. And they were doing something that made sense given their context. If I don't get it, well, how many insane people do I know? What percentage of people have you met who are clinically insane? Not very many. Not very many. I mean, it's fun to say it as a pejorative, but not very many people are just nuts, don't have a functioning mind. So we apply the same metric to history. We apply the same metric to people who believe things that are different than us. We assume they have a reason to think it. So we like them and we assume they have a reason to think it. And then we can go into the energy of digging deeper into what and why. And then I guess the last thing would be um, 
because we don't have the power to make people think our things and because we could we could be wrong about some stuff never turns out i've been wrong about like some theology things even though i said on my channel i thought i was right but then i learned more stuff and i was like oops i guess i wasn't right and sometimes i sneaky delete those videos but i mean come on we could be wrong so the fourth thing that we need is some kind of ethic of well what if we're wrong like how should we treat these people on the outside chance that we think we're right about all this stuff but we just aren't right about this one thing or that other one thing and so you know how do you treat people when you could be wrong well with grace and patience and and you know a degree of humility i'm not saying i'm great at all that stuff i'm just saying I've, I've watched really smart people do this and those seem to be the things that they do whether they're talking to people of another denomination or people who reject the whole idea of god in general yeah um it seems like there's a lot of people um out there who just cannot admit that they're wrong ever and it's hard it's really hard. it's hard for me to admit that i'm wrong and i think that one of the most um humble things you can do is when you understand that you're wrong just admitting you're wrong. And I think for a lot of people that can make a really big difference. Um, so yeah. Well, let me ask you a question, Zach, uh, if that's okay. Do you still have time? Yeah. Well, yeah I got, I got all day. Why, um, why do you think it's hard to admit we're wrong, especially about theology stuff and especially in front of people on the internet? Why is that hard? I think it comes from a pride. Like I think we all, a lot of most people struggle with pride and I think we don't want to, we don't want to be wrong, especially when you're on the internet, you know, you, you're putting your name out there. Um, you don't want to, especially like for someone like, obviously you have a lot larger platform than myself, but when we have a platform, it's like, what are my followers going to think if I say I'm wrong, if I'm wrong on something and they were following me and they believe this because of me, but then I change my mind here and say that I'm wrong. Well, what are they going to think of me? Like, are they going to think I'm dumb? Or are they going to think that, I'm not a Christian anymore. Are they going to unsubscribe, you know, unfollow me? Um, something like that. Cause I, and I think that that's probably a large part of it. Okay. So we, so just to make sure I'm tracking. So just basic human pride. I think that's a great point. Mm -hmm. Worrying about what other people will think in general, if I'm hearing you right. And then if you happen to do this in front of people, I suppose the third reason that I'm hearing you bring up would be, that there might be fallout, like there might actually be consequences if I'm wrong or if I admit that I'm wrong. Am I am I hearing you right? Yeah. Would it be okay if I threw out a fourth one in addition to those three really good points? You can throw out four, five, six, seven, <laughs> as many okay. as you want. Right. Um, yeah, I think a fourth reason that we don't like to admit when it comes to potential wrongness is that maybe our belief structure is kind of fragile. And we're afraid that if we're wrong, the whole thing breaks. And I think I see that behind some of the more erratic comments, the more erratic behavior that I run into in, in this kind of discussion on the internet. There's stuff where the data, the evidence, the reason, it just isn't supporting what a person is advocating for. But the more I get to know about their position, if that one thing goes away, the whole Jenga tower, and so I think on some of these things, you will see people like me, maybe people like you. I don't know. I've never seen you be weird about it. But I, I think you will you will see people of belief who operate very much in the world of abstract 
who construct things in the abstract or try to understand things that have been constructed by an eternal God in the abstract, we have some cornerstones in there that hold up really important parts of that building. And you can poke at that stone and worst case scenario, like uh, that part of that one wall is gonna be blemished. Yeah, I can live with that. But every ideological system has got a few cornerstones where if you mess with that one, I, that could compromise that whole arch. That could compromise that whole wing of the building. And if that goes down the wrong way, maybe the whole thing falls apart. And then who am I? And what about my dead relatives? And what about the people I said those horrible things to on the internet in defense of my camp? Like I've never physically shed blood, but I've verbally shed blood in the defense of this position. I cannot be wrong on this. I just can't be wrong. And I, I think people get to that place politically, religiously. I think I have been to that place. I'm sure I am there right now. And I just don't know. I just don't know where, but I think people get to a place where they can't be wrong and they no longer have a mechanism for being wrong. And they've, they've built things or allowed others to build them in such a way that on certain points, these things just can't be assailed and we will behave irrationally to defend them. Here's why I think that matters, my friend. If we know that about ourselves, if we know we have that proclivity and that that's the way the mind can work, especially with things that have stakes as big as the stakes of the stuff we're talking about, life, death, eternity, then I think we can be sensitive to that and understand those weaknesses in ourselves and in others when we talk about these things. Like if I go into somebody else's Catholic or Orthodox or even atheist cathedral that they've built in their mind space, and I walk right in with this masonry hammer and I go swinging at cornerstones left and right, even if they're good swings and they're logical, indefensible, you know, just rock solid or inarguable rock solid points, I'm attacking the foundation of that person, even though it might not seem like that in my brain. And so I think if we can be empathetic to the fact that we all have those things that we're just like, I, I need to build up another framework. I need to put in some wood framing or something else before I can remove that cornerstone. And if I have time to build all of that extra framing and everything around that particular arch in my, in my mind building, well then nothing's gonna collapse. And now I can go up there because I had time to build the other supports and I can slide out that compromised stone and examine it and think about it and work it through. But if I push people to say, no, you're being irrational, that means I've probably found the, that danger cornerstone place and it might be the time for me to actually show some human compassion and gently help think through what it would look like to build uh, a secondary set of supports so that if they want to at some point, they can pull out and examine that otherwise unassailable, untouchable belief or idea that if it went away, everything might collapse. I think, I think that can be a gesture of human consideration that we can give each other when, when we're working these kind of hard questions through. So I guess I guess I went to two things there. One, I added one to your list of why are we why is it hard for us to admit when we're wrong? And two, I'm kind of going back to your earlier question about what are maybe decent, right, godly, good ways to approach this with other people. And I would just argue if you if you tear up their stuff that supports all of their thought and all of their hope, and there's there's nothing that you've helped put in place to hold it up during that that construction time 
or deconstruction time, yeah, that might not be the most thoughtful thing. And people are probably going to put up the defenses justifiably so. Yeah, I think something I just thought of there at the end you were talking about and kind of giving these people um, these supports with their belief, let's say that they realize their belief is wrong. Um, I think that's part of the reason we see so many, especially comes to mind, Mormons and Muslims become atheists after they leave the faith or their faiths um, because they have these built up beliefs about God. And as you take down, as someone will ask a Mormon questions or challenge a Muslim on these things and they say, Hey, I guess I'm wrong here. And they're like, well, I had these whole built up conceptions about who God is. But if I was wrong about this, miss about uh, if I was misconceived about who God is, then all of a sudden there must not be a God. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's such a really important point that you brought up here that I actually have never really thought about too much myself when we're engaging, especially with people um, outside of the faith. Now I'm thinking like Mormons and Muslims and all those amazing people out there um, just that we need to be giving them not just something to not believe in and not just challenging their beliefs, but also giving them something to believe in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's, that's very Christ-like in terms of strategy. You know, don't think I came to abolish all your stuff. I came to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. What's the difference if you're talking to, you know, uh, an LDS person who has, I mean, it's it's not a Christian Orthodox view of Christ, but a very high view of Christ. Or a Muslim person, it's not a Christian Orthodox view of Christ, but it's a very high view of Christ. If you're talking to somebody from that camp, um, well, how did Jesus approach that stuff? You fulfill it. You don't abolish it. And so I, the way I have seen people in a, in a meaningful way come from Islam or Mormonism. And I understand those are very, very different things. I'm not, I, I'm not trying to overlump here. But when I see people come from that toward more of a, a historical Christian orthodoxy, it's usually not because someone yelled at them a lot about how dumb and bad their religion was. Mm -hmm. To do that is to assail the cornerstone of the hope they have for seeing their dead relatives again. And, you know, the, all the, the sunk cost and sunk time. I went to all that morning seminary before I went to school and then we did baptisms for the dead. I mean, that took me hours. You don't need to go right at that stuff. Instead of abolishing all of it, the Christ-like model would be fulfill it. Or I don't fulfill it. You just point to how Christ is the fulfillment of that. And I think using the word cornerstone again, which I guess is Jesus' word, I think Jesus is the cornerstone in the grand redemptive scheme of, scheme of things. But I also think Jesus is the cornerstone in this smaller conversation about the avenue we see people taking who have a high view, if still a little low and not fully Christian view of Christ, toward a historically orthodox Christian perspective on Christ. Mm. Not abolish, but fulfill. Point them toward that. Yeah, that's one of the most beautiful verses in the beautiful Bible that we have. Um, that's basically all I had questions to talk about. Anything else you want to add before we wrap things up here? No, I had fun. I, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go plow the road now. We're, we've got five days worth of snow in a row and uh, I'm the guy who plows the dirt road from my house out to the paved road for the neighborhood. So I have a job to do a quest to fulfill. <laughs> well, I wish you luck on that. Um, Thanks, Zach. If, if you are th that one person here who doesn't know who Matt Whitman is, you can be sure to subscribe to him, 10-Minute Bible Hour. His I have all of his links to all of his amazing stuff in the description of this video. Um, Thanks, and, also the, 
And I say thank you so much for coming on, Matt. I learned a lot, and I'm sure everyone else listening did. And yeah, thank you for your time. Sure, man. Let, let me throw one other thing out that a lot of people don't know that I do that I'm is kind of becoming like my, my passion. And that is there's also a podcast that I do called, not surprisingly, the 10 minute Bible hour podcast. And yeah. I, I'm just working straight through the book of Matthew, talking about passages like Matthew 517 that we just chatted about. It's 10 minutes a day on weekdays. Uh, it's this tone, the whole thing. And uh, I don't know. I think it's fun. Apparently a bunch of other people like hanging out with me and doing it too. So yeah, if you're looking for something that happens every weekday in the 10 minute range, uh, 10 minute Bible hour podcast might be fun. Wow. That sounded really sales pitchy. I overdid it. <laughs> no, you're all good now. <laughs> you are all good. All right. All right. That sounds like a great podcast. I'll have to check it out. So exactly. I enjoyed this, man. Right. It's a ton. Yeah. 100%. All right. I'll wrap things up here, guys. Thanks for listening. I'm Zach. This is it here in apologetics. All the links to all my fun stuff, also in the description, but go check out Matt's stuff. Have a great day.